Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We continue our series, Reason to Believe, discussing the injustices that Christianity has committed. You are listening to Reason to Believe, Aren't Christians Guilty of Terrible Injustice? by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is indeed from one of the letters of Paul, the letter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 17. And just a reminder to all of you that this is part of the series on apologetics. And apologetics, if you remember, is about defending your faith. Um, And another reminder, as we do this series on apologetics, as we defend our faith, we're not doing this in a pugnacious way, okay? This is not intellectual smackdown where we can defeat our enemies. This is, like everything we do as Christians, something done in love and something meant to glorify God's name. So I'm going to read this passage, and I will refer to it later in the sermon. Um, I won't get to it till quite a bit into the sermon, and that's not usual, and that's not advisable, but that's the way it's going today. So listen, starting at verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. For this very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, you may remember that I engaged uh, Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And I mentioned at that time how that book has two parts. The first three quarters of the book are um, a sort of a litany of all the terrible things that Christians have done over the years and other believers have done in the name of God, in the name of religion. And then the last quarter of the book is an argument which suggests that we would be better off, we would be more moral, we would be more kind if we had no religion, if we didn't believe in God. And last week, I tried to gently suggest that uh, Hitchens is wrong, that while there are many nice atheists in the world who do kind things, that ultimately the soil of atheism, the foundations of atheism are not sufficient to sustain goodness and righteousness and decency. It just simply won't grow out of those things. The principles don't fit. So the the goodness that we see for people who don't believe is borrowed fruit from other gardens. What I didn't address last week is the first three quarters of Hitchens' book. What about all those stories of Christians behaving badly, 
atrocities, hypocrisy, all those things throughout history, all those many, many stories of terrible things people have done, often in the name of their faith. That is something we simply need to address in a series on apologetics, because I think along with that question of suffering, why does a good God allow bad things to happen, this is simply one of the most important reasons, one of the main reasons why people give up on God. People say, don't talk to me about Jesus. I've seen what you Christians do, and I don't want to hear it. His problem has two forms. First, there are the large-scale atrocities and the large-scale hypocrisies that go throughout history, and unfortunately, there are many of them. Sometimes, we Christians have killed each other in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Catholics and Protestants took turns setting bombs, making midnight assassinations, and all of this mayhem was done with reference to their faith. The troubles were nothing compared to the kind of killing that went on in the middle of the last millennium in the religious wars. People killed each other in the thousands. Just one example, Saint Bar the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which happened in Paris in 1572, when something like, in a couple days, 10,000 Huguenot Protestants were killed by mobs in Paris, also with reference to faith. So sometimes we kill each other, but sometimes we kill outsiders. The anti-Semitism sprung up in the church in Europe led to pogroms and eventually paved the way for the Holocaust. The massacre of Bosnian Muslims by Serb Christians in Srebrenica and, closer to our own tradition, Dutch Reformed theologians in South Africa using the Bible to justify apartheid and racism. Unfortunately, Christopher Hitchens and other atheists have no trouble finding all kinds of examples of Christians behaving badly. But it's not just the big atrocities. Often the thing that drives people away from the faith the most is the small stuff. Individual Christian people who hurt other Christians. While we were growing up in the church, some supposedly devout person hurt us. And this community, which is supposed to be a place of love and support, became a place of wounding. And it wasn't just a little bit of wounding, it was a kind of wounding that left a mark. Maybe you or someone you loved was abused by another member of the church when you came to the leaders of the church to bring your case, they dismissed what you said and they defended the abuser. Maybe you went to a Christian school, Christian middle school, and the kids in your Christian middle school were exquisitely cruel. They bullied you. They bullied you in a way that your sense of self-image just shattered, and you really, if you're honest, haven't completely recovered it yet. And then those same kids who were so cruel to you went to chapel and they sang those songs with smiling faces like Jesus was their best friend. Or maybe it was a family member who was pious and smiling at church but harsh and distant at home. 
The world is full of people who used to go to church, and when you ask them, why aren't you part of the community anymore? Why, why, aren't, why aren't you coming anymore? They tell a story like the ones I just told, and they say, I am never going back. Do you know anyone like that? I do. And I'll bet some of the people you know are people you love dearly. What do we say to those people? What is our response to those stories of hurt which are out there in droves, unfortunately? The first thing I want to say is what Tim Keller said, and that's this, there's no way to give a triumphalist answer to this objection. There's no way to sort of get defensive and to try to explain all these atrocities, all these nasty incidents away. It won't do to try to trump the stories of Christians behaving badly, like 10 stories of Christians behaving badly, and now we come up with 11 stories of Christians doing good things and say, ha, we win. There's a time and a place to tell all those stories of Christians doing good things. Those are real stories, but that isn't the way to resolve this. We have to face with sorrow the truth of these things. And second and this is without getting too defensive here, this is not just a Christian problem. This is a human problem. Meanness, pettiness, hypocrisy, atrocities, these aren't just things Christians do. These are the things that people from all religions do, including atheists. We have our fingerprints on the Crusades. We have our fingerprints on the Holocaust. They have their fingerprints on Mao's Great Leap Forward, and on Stalin's gulags, which killed millions and millions of people. And all the small-scale stuff, that's on both sides too. Every people from all kinds of religions, Buddhists, Hindus, Zoroastrians, atheists, are all capable of these small acts of petty cruelty. So the reason there's so much cruelty and atrocity in the church is because the church is made up of people. This is a people problem. More specifically, it's a heart problem. We human beings are glorious creatures made in the image of God. And we are capable of great acts of creativity and courage and imagination. We're able to build civilizations and make beautiful music. We are able to do wonderful things, but there's something twisted in our hearts. And when we are under duress, when we feel pressured, when we're afraid, when we are hurt, we can break bad. And when we break bad, all that creativity, all that imagination, all that energy can be turned towards very, very destructive purposes. The heart is deceitful above all things, said Jeremiah. Humans are the problem. And there's something good about this. That means when someone comes to us as Christians and accuses us of doing terrible things, we stand together with everyone. This is not just a problem for us. This is a problem for everyone. We're all looking for the same solution. We're all facing the same hurt. This is potentially a place where we can stand with those who would want to stand against us. Which brings us to the third thing I want to say. We are people who want to give a place and a way for the brokenness of this heart that causes all that trouble. 
We have a place and we have a way for all the terrible things. The Bible is completely clear-eyed about the state of our human heart and the state of the people who follow Jesus. If you read this book, you should not at all be surprised that the people who follow him can be nasty because when you read about the, the heroes of the faith in here, they're not shiny people. Sometimes it's like a rogues gallery. Noah got so drunk that he passed out in his tent. Moses' hot temper led him to kill a man. Jacob lied and cheated his way to his brother's inheritance. Samson was vain, lustful, and violent. Judah, who is an ancestor of our Lord Jesus, took up with prostitutes. And, of course, King David murdered one of his main officers so he could take up with his wife. And that's just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the 12 men whom Jesus chose to be the foundation of his church spent their time arguing about who would be the greatest, denied and betrayed Jesus when the trips were down, and basically abandoned him and fled. Throughout Scripture, these are the people that God chooses to follow him. These are the people whom God calls into this community. Brothers and sisters, says Paul, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. That's an understatement. It reminds me of that old saying about this place. The church is not a museum for perfect saints. It is a hospital for sinners. Church is not a museum for perfect saints. It is a hospital for sinners. What do you expect to see when you go to a hospital? You expect to see sick people. People in wheelchairs. People with bandages. People with casts. People with oxygen. People pulling their IVs up and down the rows. Well, it's the same thing when you come to church. What do you expect to see when you come to church? You expect to see addicts and adulterers, and criminals, and people with terrible pasts, and people who have done terrible things, and people who are hypocritical. Yes, we are all here, and the reason we are here is the same reason people go to hospitals. Because we want to be different. We want to change. Walking into a church and complaining that everyone there is is a hypocrite, is a little bit like walking into an AA meeting and looking around and saying, oh my goodness, this is a terrible place. Everyone here is an alcoholic. Which brings us to our passage. This is the place, right? It's a, it's a gathering of sinners. We have a place. We also have a way. The Apostle Paul was never afraid to admit what kind of a person he was. And maybe this passage is the best example of that. Paul is pretty brutal on himself in this passage. He pulls no punches. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. You know how bad it was? I was the worst. I was the worst of sinners. Paul looks at himself in the mirror in this passage and he says, I'm the worst. And this is pretty typical of Paul. He often leads with his sin, his brokenness, as he presents the gospel. Ephesians 3.8. Although I am the least of the Lord's people, grace was given to me. 
1 Corinthians 15, 9. I am the least of all the apostles. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Acts 26, when he presents the gospel to Agrippa, how does he start? He starts by saying, hey, I used to give the orders to have Christians killed. Paul is a mess and he freely confesses it and he also is always saying that it's not just me, it's the whole community. There is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of these things Paul's saying, yeah, this is, this is who we are. We're broken people together. At AA meetings, what's the first thing they do when they sit down and they introduce themselves? I assume they still do this. They used to. They admit what kind of people they are. Hi, my name's Peter, and I'm an alcoholic. And then they don't just sort of make that general confession. They get really specific, right? They say, my alcoholism wrecked my job. It broke up my family. It destroyed my marriage. They specifically lay out their sins. AA learned that from Paul. Hi, everyone. My name is Paul. And I am the worst of sinners. But I want to be different. And by the grace of God, I am changing. I'm not all the way there yet, although I'm pressing on towards the goal, and I feel sure that the one who called me will complete in me the good work that he's begun. That's such an important recognition, that fundamental character, that we start with confession that that's the beginning of our path towards righteousness, that we do it every single week here in church, including this morning. It's like we come into church in our service of confession, that's where we do it, and we say, hi, my name's Peter, I'm a sinner. My name's Bob, I'm a sinner. Hi, my name's Daniel, I'm a sinner, but I'm trying to be a better person. Now, some people complain about this time of confession, and there are lots of churches that don't do it anymore. And the reason they do it, they say, man, it's so negative. Why are we always focusing on sin in the church? Why are we always talking about how we've fallen short? Can't we be more positive? Can't we talk about happy things? And so there are lots of churches that don't even have services of confession anymore. I think that's a mistake. Look at our passage. It's true. Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. But is our passage negative in tone? Is Paul down on himself? Is Paul hating on himself? No, it's exactly the opposite. Paul is overjoyed because he's saying that even he, as the worst of sinners, has received the grace of his Lord. Here is a trustworthy saying worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners and I was the very worst people. If God can save me, if Jesus can pull me up, he can save anyone. Paul knows the human heart is a mess. Paul knows what human beings are capable of. But he's not scared of naming those things and starting those things and admitting those things because he knows how big the grace of his Lord is. Paul can look his own sin in the face because he's also seen the face of Jesus Christ as Lord and he knows that face is full of love. Paul can talk about the depths of human depravity because he's also seen the heights of the glory of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus and he knows which is stronger. Paul can start by naming his sin 
because he knows the last word belongs to Jesus and that last word will be glory. And that's why when he reflects on his sin and calls himself the worst, he does not end up in despair, but in our passage ends up in doxology. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the gospel. The human heart is capable of terrible, terrible things, but here in this place, before the face of this God, we have a hope that can get us through absolutely anything. When I consider the failures of the past and my own personal failures, it's easy to be overwhelmed. When I consider the challenges of the future, the divisions in the church, the challenges of racial reconciliation, the, all of this exacerbated by the conflict that's around COVID-19 and what do we do next, when I consider all of these things, I can easily feel like, how are we ever going to manage this? But when I lift up my eyes and see the one about Paul, the one about whom Paul is talking, the one who is, pours out his grace on the worst of sinners, then I'm able to step forward and say, here I am, Lord, send me. Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you know the places in our heart and the places in our past that we're not proud of. You know that on a personal level, and Lord, you know that uh, on, on a level of, of your people. Lord, if we look through your history, we know, Lord, that we've been guilty of many things, and we know that we've let you down. We thank you, though, that we can come to this place and lift up our heads and see you and your grace and know that you are stronger than our failures. So, Lord, we confess our sins once again, and we open our hearts, and we receive your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.